Amen. All right, we're going to be in Judges 18, picking up the second half of the story we started last week. And we will do all of chapter 18 tonight. So buckle up, because it's going to be a long read. And then we'll uh, talk more about its significance and, and what, it, uh, what it implies for us uh, today. So I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is on the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And then they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal. Their brothers said to them, What did you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men from the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal, and went up and encamped at kiriath Jerem in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanath-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of kiriath Jerem, and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. Then the five, who had gone to scout the country of Laish, said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there, and came to the house of the young Levite, and the home of Micah. And they asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered, and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand to your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you would come with us, with, to us with such a company? 
And he said, Take my gods that I make and the people and go away. And what have I left? Now then, do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laash, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So, it's a long section. Um, I'm going to remind you just a little bit of the, the main idea that we talked about last week, because uh, this week is really the same main idea, just part two of the story. Last week we talked about chapter 17 and kind of the outset of religious apostasy. And this week, uh, if you like, is religious apostasy chapter two or part two. Um, and like all sequels, it's going to be worse than the original. <laughs> and it's going to kind of, it's going to show a greater degradation in the story. It's the same basic plot, same kinds of characters. They introduce some more bad characters. And it's going to just spiral down and kind of out of control as the plot unfolds. Now, it's a long section, so we're not going to go verse by verse back through it. But I'm going to highlight some of the plot points that we've just read together. And you're going to kind of see that degradation over time. So the first thing to point out in their religious apostasy is, uh, is the people of Dan that set out to go and essentially seek the approval of the Levite. Now, the reason that's an interesting detail, you know, they, the five men set out, they go to explore the land. Um, this mirrors something Moses did when the people were initially supposed to go into the promised land. They're supposed to send spies out into the promised land to seek the land. And the spies come back and report that the land is fertile, but the people are too strong, so we shouldn't go and take the land. And now, the tribe of Dan sends spies out into the same promised land, just a smaller section of it, and then the, the spies come back and basically say, hey, the land's fertile, we should take it. And that's interesting because they already knew that report hundreds of years ago. They already knew that before they entered the promised land, before they failed to capture the promised land early in the book of Judges, where it tells us that they don't go into the land because they're excusing that the people are in fact too strong for them. And all the tribes in order essentially don't carry out their commission. So now, a couple hundred years later, the tribe of Dan is going to go into the promised land. They're going to go into a different section, and they're going to send scouts. They're going to kind of go through all the motions. And what they're expecting to find is this profitable land, and they're going to use this as a means to uh, justify their capturing of, of these cities. And so they go, they bump into the Levite, and you'll notice that it says they notice the voice of the Levite. They recognize his voice. Now, the, the narrator explains why they recognize his voice towards the end of the chapter, so just keep that in your mind. But they, uh, they go, they recognize his voice, um, and this is in uh, verse 3. And they talk to him and they ask him, who brought you here and what are you doing here? What's your business? He tells them essentially everything that happened in the last chapter. Micah gave him a job, gave him a house, gave him great pay. So now he's here working in Micah's house. He got a, got a job, uh, a different job that he's working now. And they seem to recognize him. And so they ask him for his blessing to, to search Yahweh to see if... This is God's will that they go in and, and conquer this, this territory. 
That's interesting because they're, they're going through the motions of religion, what they know they should be doing. They know, at least in part, that the Levites are supposed to discern God's will for them. There's an ephod in this house, so theoretically, the Levite could use the ephod and discern God's will on their behalf and, and give them a report. But all indication is that, the, that there's no, oh, okay, and the Levite goes and, and discerns God's will. The Levite just essentially tells them, you have a blessing from God, go and, go and conquer the land. So there's no detail to, to confer to us that he actually went and sought the will of God. When things like this happen in the book of, uh, in the, book of the five, uh, in when Moses is, for example, going to see God's will, there's accounts of the narrator going and telling us that after Moses has the conversation, he then goes and seeks God's will in some way, and then he comes back with the report. That detail, those details are lacking here, which means he's likely not seeking God's will. The narrator's telling us that by omitting that detail, and that he's simply giving a blessing, a religious blessing, to these warriors. So they go into the land, uh, they recognize the land, they find what they already know is there, fertile land in the promised land. That should not be a surprise, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. It's good land, and they want it. And so they, but they, what they do is they take Micah's, uh, or sorry, the Levite, who Micah has now, they take his blessing, uh, combined with this favorable report of the land, and they put these two details together, and they say, God, in his providence, is giving us this territory. The priest has given us a blessing. We have fertile land. We have soldiers. We can take them by surprise. There's no one to guard this city. We can take the land from them. And so they say, well, we can get away with it. So let's go ahead and, and do that. And so they amass 600 men. This is in verse 11. 600 men now from the tribe of Dan. By the way, that's not a huge number for Israel to sum up in battle, which is supposed to tell you how separated these tribes are, that Dan wanting to possess a city can only muster up 600 soldiers to do their, their work. It kind of tells you how scattered the people are at this point. They go into this land that they're supposed to do, but before they go and attack these cities, they pass on back past Micah's house. And now they're going to go, and they're not content with just getting a blessing from the Levite. Now they want the Levite to be their personal Levite. And so they're going to go rob Micah blind. They're going to take his ephod, his household gods, everything that's valuable in this shrine that he set up, and they're going to take his priest. And it, it's this kind of funny scene that unfolds in verse uh, 14 all the way through verse 20. And the, the way it kind of unfolds uh, is, is basically like the men show up at the door. They send five people in to essentially just take stuff out. The priest kind of stands by and watches. And the priest asks what's going on. Not that he doesn't know what's going on. Then they say, oh, just come with us. We'll give you a better life. And he goes, sounds great. And then he leaves Micah. Then he, he goes with these people who have essentially just robbed Micah for, for no reason. So there's no moral compass being followed. They've just stolen, broken a commandment. And then uh, when Micah calls his neighbors together and asks them to pursue the Danites, the Danites don't justify what they did when Micah raises a complaint. The Danites instead basically say, just go back home. You don't want this fight. And Micah has to because it says in verse 26 that the people of Dan went their way and Micah, when he saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and he went back to his home. So Micah's not thinking that it's right that they stole the priest or that they stole all his stuff. He simply knows he can't win the fight. And so the, the Danites basically challenge him, say, if you want justice to be done, you're going to have to square off against us. And Micah knows he can't win that fight. So not because he thinks it's right what they did, but he turns away because he would lose more uh, in that battle. He would lose the fight. That's an interesting detail because what you're seeing is the unfolding narrative in Judges is that when there's no king in the land, what happens is the people who are the strongest win out over other people. It's not moral rightness. It's not... Uh, it, it's not anything according to God's law. It's political power, military power, and that being thrown around. It's kind of like mob rule, if you will. 
And so in this case, the Danites have the bigger group, 600 men, stronger men. And so they, they win in this case, not because they're right, but simply because they have more numbers. And then uh, they go and they sack that city. That's no surprise to us. They, uh, they destroy it. It says, in fact, the, the narrator adds the detail that there was no deliverer because they're too far away from essentially any surrounding city to defend them. So no one's coming to save the city. Then they name it after their tribe. They name it after Dan. And then remember when I told you that the people of Dan recognized the voice of the Levite? That detail becomes important because in verse uh, 30, we're told who the Levite is. He's not just some random Levite from the middle of nowhere. You notice his lineage, and look with me at verse 30 if you can uh, find it in the text. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. The Levite is a, a, a grandchild of Moses. So he's in Moses' direct lineage. This is not a nobody Levite. This is not one of the many Levites. This is, he's, he's kind of in the inner circle, if you will. There's a reason that they recognize his voice. He, he's well known in Israel. So that when they bump into it in some random house, they recognize who it is. And in fact, if you, if you notice, many Bibles will have a little footnote right after the, the word Moses. And it'll say, uh, some, some translations will say, or, or the other option is Manasseh. That's another uh, option or wording. And the reason that that's an option is because the original uh, copyist of the text thought it was so embarrassing that Moses was related to this Levite that they changed the name to save Moses' reputation. But the oldest manuscripts that we have in do, do say Moses, and so it's more of like a saving face move. But in fact, it is Moses, it's his, it's his descendant. And Manasseh, if you don't know, is the evil, the wicked king associated uh, later in scripture. So there's a reason they put him with Manasseh. And so, because this Levite behaves more like he's descended from Manasseh. But uh, all that being said, uh, you kind of see this degradation in the story, right? So that's the basic plot of what happens. Now we can uh, step back and kind of the same way we looked at it last week. Well, why is the author telling us about the religious apostasy that happens in the land? What, what's he trying to communicate to the next generation of people who would read his work, his, his historical work, when he gives it to an audience package? What's the message that they're going to pick up in his, in his record? Well, the first thing you notice, just like last week, is that before he's going to get into chapter 19 and 20 and all the unfolding events there, he's going to first tell us about the religious decline that happens before he tells us about the moral decline. And it's important that he sets up the religious fall before the moral fall. Lest we be tempted to say the moral fall was really the big problem in Israel. What he's establishing for us at the get-go is at the point in time of chapter 17 and chapter 18, there's no moral code being followed by anyone in Israel. There's not the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting is he's telling us that they know about the law. And we know this because they know enough to discern from a Levite. They know enough to use an ephod for discernment from God. They know enough to call God by the right name. They know enough to know that there's this divine mandate on them to go get territory. They know kind of where to look generally. So they know bits and pieces of the law, but they're ignoring what we would say are the weightier matters of the law. And Jesus actually accuses the Pharisees in the New Testament of something similar, that they know details of the law. They know these small little things, and they're very good about these small little things, going to possess the land, all this stuff. But they're not so good about the weightier matters of the law. And I think you see something similar happening here. They know enough religion intelligently to bend it to their will, but they don't know enough religion to submit themselves to God's law. They don't know enough religion to not steal. They don't know enough of God's character to know that all of what they're doing here is completely against the will of God. And we know this uh, uh, in many ways, but the, the one main way you know that they at least have some understanding of God's law is they see it as kind of essential to have the blessing of the priests on their mission. 
they don't really care if that blessing is from God, but they care about the political posturing that comes with a priest blessing the mission of an Israelite tribe to go and conquer a certain people group. They value it so much, in fact, that they think, we'll just keep this one in our back pocket so that he can do or sanction whatever else we want him to sanction. And if you know anything about the corruption of the Christian people, the same kind of thing happens in church history, where the church gets in, in bed with the political realm, and the church ends up being a, a blessing or a, a divine uh, decree, or it assists the state to go and conquer lands that belong to the state. Uh, in fact, uh, we talked a little bit last week about how Hitler actually coerces the church into blessing his mission to uh, purify Germany. And so this is not an unheard of thing even in our day. I'm just telling you that before all of the crazy stuff happens in Israel, what happens first is the religious decline, the religious apostasy. And it's important that that be established first because one of the antidotes we might be tempted to go towards in uh, chapter 19, we start reading about the decline there, or chapter 20, and we start reading about all the wicked things that happen in Israel, we might be tempted to say, the thing that solves this is, is knowledge about what is right. More knowledge, increased awareness of what is right and what is wrong, that would solve the problem. Maybe a general agreed upon consensus of human dignity, human, human value, that would solve what we see happening here. The people just don't know what is in indeed valuable. But scripture's telling us before all that stuff happens, the thing that laid the groundwork for all those things to fall apart is an abandonment of Yahweh as ruler and leader in Israel. When God is dethroned, metaphorically, he's never dethroned, but when he's dethroned in the hearts of the Israelites, what happens is moral decline. And so the solution for Israel is not better moral laws, better law keeping, more widespread knowledge about the law of God. It's more obedience to the law of God. It's to actually take God's word seriously in totality, not in only the parts that they think serve their preferences at this moment. And I think the author of Judges is setting that up for us right at the get-go. The Israelites are completely divided. The tribe of Dan is one case example of this divide. Micah's house was one case example of this divide. The Levite, who is Moses' uh, descendant, is one example. But he's telling us this is a widespread thing. It's not just the tribe of Dan, it's likely the other tribes as well. Just like it wasn't just Samson, it's all the people who struggle with this kind of abandonment of God. And so this is kind of what's being laid in the foundation. So when, when the religious apostasy goes in Israel, well, what can we expect? We can expect this random individual worship. Uh, we can expect what we're going to see later on next week in chapter 19, 20, uh, the unfolding kind of issues morally. And I just want to, before we close, point you to one text in the New Testament that confirms this testimony about abandoning God and being given over to sin. And you'll see this in Romans chapter 1. They're probably familiar words to you at this point, but I just want to read them again to remind you that Scripture speaks with one voice, both Old and New Testament. And what the author of Judges does in a couple of chapters, Paul does in one chapter in Romans chapter 1. And Paul wants us to understand in Romans 1 that while the manifestation of sin is what we see in the world, the manifestation of sin is not the root cause of our problem as a human race. I'm going to start in verse 18 of Romans 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now here are the similarities, right? We know that the people in Judges know God's law. We know that they know God. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
But here's the problem. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature which is themselves, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's Paul's assessment in the New Testament, echoing the teaching of the author of Judges in the Old Testament. The abandonment of God lays the bedrock for the moral decline that you see. So when you see moral problems, don't see that problem as the issue. It's a problem of God's authority, God's enthronement, his centrality in Israel. That's really what sets up the Israelites for that fall we'll see next week. So with that, let me close, and then we can move into some discussion. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight as we dig into your word. Uh, Would you give us uh, eyes to see uh, what is in your word for us? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts that are uh, malleable and sensitive to your spirit? Uh, Would you impress us with um, something that would uh, change how we live, Uh, change how we perceive you, change our affections toward you. Lord, you make us a teachable people. Pray this all in your name. Amen.